let's just start at chapter 14, verses 8, and we'll go ahead and read through the end of the chapter, and then I'll go back and do a brief review, because if I can't remember and you can't remember, we're in a pretty sorry place. So, Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, And dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through them, many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. We said um, last week, I know we did cover this much, that Paul went off on three or four missionary journeys. It depends upon who's counting. His first missionary journey is the one that we're looking at here in Acts chapters 13 and 14. Uh, Paul went off on a second missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts chapter 16 through 18, which deal with... Paul's journeys to really many of the great cities of the ancient world, uh, Philippi, Berea, Athens, Ephesus, Corinth, and Thessalonica. The third journey uh, has Paul in Acts chapter 18 verses and through chapter 20 dealing with his journeys through many of those cities that he visited on the second journey through what is now modern-day Turkey, and then Paul going back to Ephesus and spending an extended period of time there, perhaps as much as two years in Ephesus. And the fourth journey is what is recorded in Acts chapters 25 through 28, and that is Paul's journey to Rome. Not a missionary journey in the proper sense, because Paul went there under arrest. But nevertheless, wherever Paul went, whatever the circumstances that took him to a new place, he was always about preaching the gospel. 
And he did that on that occasion even in chains. Now, there are some who suggest that that wasn't the final imprisonment of Paul in Rome. Some have suggested that after a brief imprisonment in Rome, on that occasion, house arrest, Paul was eventually freed. And there are some indicators that he actually went off as far as Spain preaching the gospel and then returned to Rome where he was arrested during the reign of Nero, imprisoned in the Mamertine jail, and ultimately executed on the Appian Way leading out of Rome. But what we do know is that there were three missionary journeys, perhaps more, but three that we know of along with the journey to Rome. And I pointed out last week that we are looking at this first missionary journey where Paul started off in this place, Antioch, and you'll see that there is another Antioch up there, two Antiochs in the ancient world. This is the Antioch in Syria, which was described for us in Acts chapter 13. This was that remarkable church that had been founded as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was put to death, and we're told that at that point the Christians scattered. And some of them went as far as Antioch. Some went to Damascus, some went to Antioch, and it was there that a great church was established. And we said that this was really the beginning of the missionary era because up to that point, the Christians had shared their faith, but only in a reactive way as opportunities presented themselves. When you get to Acts 13 and you get to that church in Antioch of Syria, for the first time, the church becomes proactive. It begins to target areas where the gospel has never been heard, and they begin to go out and evangelize those areas. And we said last week that you and I are here today in large measure because of the work of that church and the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, who were sent out from that church. So we are here. So it's a very important section in the book of Acts, a real turning point. At any rate, you can see that blue line. Paul traveled down the coast to Seleucia, port city, took a boat across to the Isle of Cyprus. He evangelized the Isle of Cyprus with his companion Barnabas, and they traveled back up to the continent to Pamphylia, pressed on to Antioch, and then eventually on to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe. And then when they had finished in those cities, you can follow the red line, they simply retraced their steps, went back through the churches or through the areas where they had established churches. And when I say established churches, you need to understand we're not talking about large numbers of people in that day. We're talking about maybe, in some of those places, two or three believers. So don't think of the church in terms of bricks, mortar, and stone, but think of the church in terms of people, and sometimes just a handful of people, with only a rudimentary knowledge of the gospel. Because Paul couldn't have stayed in some of those cities more than a couple of weeks, as we're going to see. But he traveled back through those areas and then returned to Antioch in Syria, where they reported to the church. So that's basically the story of Acts chapter 14. But we want to take a closer look at this journey, because it's really quite remarkable, and there are a number of important things that it teaches us. First thing that we noted last week is that we find a pattern in Paul's missionary journey. And we see that pattern clearly for the first time in Acts chapter 13, and we see it played out over the course of many years throughout the rest of the book. And the pattern is this. Paul would go into a new area, and he would preach the gospel. Now, depending upon where he went, he would start to preach the gospel in a different place. We're told that when he went to Antioch and Pisidia, he went into the synagogue. And he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures. Now, Paul went into the synagogue for a couple of reasons. Number one, because at that point, he still regarded himself as a Jew. A Jew who had embraced the Messiah. 
the Messiah had come. So he still regarded himself as a Jew, so he would have gone to the synagogue, wherever he was, to worship. But the other reason that he would have gone to the synagogue was because it was a point of contact. It was a place where he could begin to talk to people, and the point of contact, of course, was the Old Testament scriptures. At least in the synagogue, people believed the Old Testament. And remember, at that point, that's the only Bible those people had. There was no New Testament. The Gospels had not been written. Paul hadn't written his epistles yet. So he would start with the Old Testament scriptures, and he would begin from that point to proclaim the Gospel. So we'd go into an area, and he would always preach. And we noted last week that the emphasis is on the Word of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, the Word of the Lord. Paul didn't go in and preach his own opinions. He went in there and he preached the word of the Lord. And we said the second part of the pattern was wherever he preached the word of the Lord, there was division in the community. And we said there was division because that's what the gospel does. The gospel functions as light. And what does light do when it comes into a darkened place? It brings division. And that's exactly what happened here. We don't think about it, but that's exactly what Jesus said would happen, didn't he? We imagine Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And there's no question about the fact that the Gospels do describe Jesus as the Prince of Peace. But Jesus also made it very clear that he came into the world not to bring peace, but to bring a what? A sword. Now you say, well, I don't understand. That that seems to be counter to everything that we've heard about Jesus. Well, Jesus came to bring peace, but he came to bring peace between man and God. That's what he came to do. You and I don't think of it this way, but you and I are in conflict with the Lord. Did you know that? Every Sunday, one of the things that we say is, forgive us our what? Trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does it mean to trespass? It means to step onto somebody else's property, doesn't it? It means to violate the law. When we say forgive us our trespasses, basically what we're saying is we have violated God's law. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? God said to them when he placed them in the the garden, you may eat of any tree in the garden except for one. The tree in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat it. If you eat of it, what's going to happen? You die. Everything else is yours, but that's mine. I'm giving you everything else, but that's mine. Don't touch it. And what did they do? They ate it. Now, what did they do? If that's God's territory, what did they do? They trespassed. They trespassed. A story is told about Caesar, Julius Caesar, that he was told by the Roman Senate that so long as he stayed on his side of the Rubicon and the Senate stayed on their side of the Rubicon, there would be peace. But if Caesar crossed the Rubicon, there would be what? War, if he trespassed. And if you know your ancient history, you know that's exactly what Caesar did. He charged into the river with the words, the die is cast. And the result was a bloody civil war. Well, that's what you and I have done. Every time we sin, we trespass on God's territory. And you say, well, I don't understand how that's trespassing in God's territory. Because the root of all sin, my friends, is not eating of a tree. The root of all sin is the desire to be like God. Isn't that what happened really in the garden? When the serpent appeared to Eve and said, look at that tree, that's pretty good looking, Eve's response was what? We're not allowed to touch that tree. 
That's God's tree. God said we can touch any tree, eat of any tree, but we must not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden or touch it lest we die, which tells us that she understood very clearly what the parameters, what the rules, what the restrictions were. So what persuaded her to eat if she already knew the restrictions? It was when the serpent came to her and said, Ah, but if you eat of that tree, you will be like God. And all of a sudden, ding, a little bell went off. Like God. What does it mean to be like God? It means to be in control, my friends. It means to be the master of your own fate, captain of your own destiny, as the old poem Invictus says. And that's what we want. We don't want anybody telling us how to live. We want to do it our own way. And that's the root of all sin. And so to trespass into God's territory, that's what it means to sin. And so when the word comes into an area, it brings division. It brings division between those who will accept and those who will not. And Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace, to bring peace between a warring humanity and a holy God. But he also was aware of the fact that to proclaim the gospel to a people who are warring against God is not always going to bring happiness. Some people don't want to hear that message. And they will be divided. And that was the case with Paul. He went into an area, he'd preach the gospel, tell people that they were sinners, that they needed a Savior, that the Savior had come, and there would be division between those who would accept that message and embrace it and those who would reject it, be offended by it. Third part of the pattern, we said, was that when the division came, it normally resulted in persecution, persecution of the messenger. We're told that when Paul went up to Pisidian Antioch and preached, in the gospel, there was, preached the gospel, there was division in the community, and what happened next? We're told that the Jews were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against Paul and Barnabas. And did what? Expelled them from the region. So we see preaching. We see division between those who accept and those who reject. The light of the gospel comes in and divides. And then you find persecution. Those who reject the message stir up persecution against the messenger. But we noticed a fourth thing, and this is very important. The fourth thing is this. In spite of all of that, there was always growth. It was always growth. We read this in chapter 13, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. So in spite of the persecution, in spite of the division, there was still growth. Now that's the pattern that we find presented at the end of Acts chapter 13. And it's just a reminder to us that we're going to see that pattern played out wherever we go. And I highlight that for you because, my friends, as Christians, that's our job, is to share the gospel. And we can expect to see exactly the same pattern played out in our own lives and in our own ministries. We have a responsibility to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came into the world to save what? Sinners. Well, I got news for you. People don't like to be told that they're sinners. Any John Wayne fans out there? Oh, good for you. Good for you. Well, if you've ever seen um, the movie Rooster Cogburn and the Lady, starring John Wayne and Katherine Hepburn, and if you haven't, I commend it to you. Go home. It's very entertaining. But there's a story about he's a one-eyed old marshal, 
who drinks too much and bathes too little. And she is a Bible-toting missionary that spends the whole movie preaching to him. And there's this one point in the movie, I love it, where she's just really gotten under his skin. He, he can't take it anymore. And Catherine Hepburn turns to him and she says, Reuben, you don't like me, do you? And John Wayne looks at her, and he's got patch over one eye, and with that one eye, he looks at her, and he said, Sister, it ain't that I don't like you. It's just that no man likes to be told that he's high-smelling and low down. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? Nobody likes to be told that you're high-smelling and low down, and yet that's what the gospel says. Isn't that what we say? We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and what? Wickedness. Folks, you're not just sinners, you're wicked people. You're miserable wretches. You're daring worms. He's saying, no, that preacher, I don't know, he's starting to meddle now. Um, That's what the scripture says about us. And unless you recognize how bad you are, you can never recognize how great a Savior Jesus Christ is. And so when you go in and you begin to tell people that, man, they take offense at that. No, I'm not. I'm respectable. By golly, I go to St. Michael's Church. Don't tell me I'm a wretch. Those people over there at St. Philip's, we're not so sure about them. But over here, see, we take offense at that, don't we? So there's division. And oftentimes when there's division, what's going to happen? People are going to talk abusively about it. Oh, that holy roller, that Bible thumper, that holier than thou, you name it. And they stir up persecution oftentimes. And we may find in our own day, in this age, where people are offended by anything, that even preach the good news of Jesus Christ may be regarded as a form of hate speech the result of which will be persecution. So I point that out to you because I want you to recognize that Paul operating in a first century context is operating in a situation very similar to our own in the 21st century. And we can expect to face exactly the same thing. But we can also take heart knowing that the word of the Lord, as Isaiah says, never comes back void. It will always take root in some way and it will prosper in the way that God has intended. So what happens? Well, Paul goes on with Barnabas from Pisidian Antioch, and they travel on to Iconium, and that's what's described in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. And I think we did make it through Iconium. We said we noticed that this pattern was played out. Paul went in and he preached the gospel, and we're told that a number of people, the Jews in particular, stirred up the Gentiles and were told poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 3, so they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were what? Divided. Isn't that interesting? They were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Jews and Jew, Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, there's the persecution, and to stone them, They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So you see that pattern in Acts chapter 13. They move on to a new place in Acts chapter 14. You see the exact same pattern. 
Now, we're going to see this pattern, as I said, played out throughout the book, but we see it highlighted here in the 14th chapter. In the case of Iconium, the emphasis is upon the division. We're going to see in the case of Lystra, the emphasis is upon the persecution. And in the case of Derby, we're going to see that the emphasis is upon the growth. All right, so here we are in the city of Lystra. Paul and Barnabas move on to this next city of Lystra, where they begin to preach the gospel in Lystra. Now, what's interesting here is that as they begin to preach the gospel, a miracle takes place. Look again at Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian. And I want you to hold on to the fact that they are speaking in Lyconian. Paul was not speaking in Lyconian. He was no doubt speaking in Greek, which was the lingua franca of the day. Most people understood Greek, but evidently they were in a part of the country where the people also had their own native language, their native dialect. Uh, This is true if you go to Ireland today. Ireland has two official languages. One is English, and the other is the Irish, a form of Gaelic. And uh, we actually, when I was in Ireland over a year ago, went to a section of Ireland where the people predominantly spoke the native language. They understood our English, but they spoke the native Irish. Well, this was the case here. So I want you to hold on to that because it's going to be very important. And they were saying in their own language, which Paul did not understand, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And by the way, it's Hermes. I remember being in church one Sunday, and a lady stood up to read this passage. And she said, Hermes. And I thought, that could only happen in an Episcopal church. Uh, Hermes. But it's Hermes. It's Hermes. Not an expensive scarf or anything like that, but this ancient pagan deity. So Paul goes in, he's preaching the gospel, and sometimes when you're preaching, you you recognize that there are certain people that are just tuned in. Now, there's some people you can tell are zoning out, but you can always tell that there's some people that are just tuned in to what you're saying. And, And Paul evidently, as he was preaching, noticed this man who was crippled from birth, who was tuned in listening intently, and Paul, whether it was the Holy Spirit speaking to him or some sort of intuition, recognized that this man had faith. Now, when I say faith, I'm not talking about hope against hope or credulity. I'm talking about trust. Somehow, Paul in his spirit could tell that this man had accepted the message. And so what did Paul do? He cried out in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. We're told that the man sprung up, sprang up, and began walking. Now, this is a great thing. Paul preaches. I want you to notice what comes first, though. The miracle comes after the preaching, never before. Paul didn't go into the area and think, well, I'll impress these people. I'll do a couple of miracles, and everybody will listen to me. Paul always went in, and he preached first. 
And then, if it pleased God, miracles, oftentimes, the things that accompanied an apostle took place. And that's the case here. He went in and he preached first, and he saw that the man had faith. And as a result of the faith, what happens? A miracle takes place. But as the old expression says, no good deed goes unpunished, because we're told that while the miracle takes place, the miracle leads to a misunderstanding. And what's the misunderstanding? Well, the misunderstanding in verse 11 is that these men were pagan deities. That they were Zeus and Hermes, or as the Romans called them, Jupiter and Mercury. The chief of the gods and his primary spokesman. Barnabas they called Zeus, because he was the elder gentleman. And Paul they called Hermes, or Mercury, because what? Because he was the talker. He was the mouthpiece, as it were. They'd never seen anything like this. Miracles. A man who had been lame since birth, suddenly standing up and walking. What does this mean? Well, they said it must be that the gods have come down to us. Now, we know a little bit about this area as a result of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Ovid was a famous Roman poet and historian who wrote a whole series of books. One of them was called The Metamorphoses. And in that book, he tells the story, stories that he had collected throughout the ancient world of the gods doing great things. And that particular book had to do with the gods transforming themselves into different creatures, sometimes to benefit mankind, sometimes to fool mankind. But that's what the whole book is about. And one of the stories that he had collected, and he wrote that book, incidentally, in the year 8 AD, so prior to Paul going to this area, But what it tells us is that there was a legend associated with this region that at one point in history, these two ancient gods visited this area. That's where the story comes from. And the story is a fascinating one. It's the story about Zeus and Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury, coming down at one point and visiting a valley in this region. And the story goes that they masqueraded themselves as just common travelers, And they went from house to house in this region, knocking on the door, asking for a night's lodging. And we're told that the people were inhospitable and refused them lodging. And they came upon the house of an old couple by the name of Philemon and Bacchus. Philemon was the man, Bacchus was the wife. And this poor couple, elderly couple, who had nothing, welcomed them in, entertained them to the best of their ability for the night. And the legend holds that the next morning, what happened was that these two gods revealed themselves for who they really were, Zeus and Hermes. And they led Philemon and Bacchus out of the city up to a high hill, and when they turned them around, they saw that the entire valley had been flooded and every man, woman, and child in it had been killed. And their own tiny little hovel had been transformed into a glittering temple with a golden dome. Now that was the legend. It was a legend that had been circulating for some time. Ovid had already written a book about it. Now you know how it is. Rumors that fly around a city, around a community, around a town. This is one of those rumors, one of those urban legends. So when all of a sudden they see these two men, and they come in and they're preaching... And all of a sudden, they had the ability to make people who were crippled from birth stand and walk. What are you thinking? You're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, 
Zeus and Hermes have come back. And we had better treat them with more hospitality than we did the first time. And so the result is that what do they decide to do? They decide that they are going to offer sacrifice to these two men, whom they assume are the gods in disguise. So that's the background. Now, if you're in Paul and Barnabas' shoes, you're looking at all of this, and you're not quite sure what's happening. There's all this murmuring going on through the crowd, and remember, they're speaking in the Lyconian language. They're not speaking in Greek, so you don't know what they're saying. And before you know it, there's this procession that's coming out from the city with all of these temple priests, and they're leading an animal, and they've got garlands of flowers, and it looks like they're about to sacrifice, and Paul and Barnabas are no doubt thinking to themselves, oh, we've showed up on some sort of a festival day. Oh my, these poor pagans, we've we've got to straighten them out, only to discover, lo and behold, that they're coming out to make sacrifices to them. And they're mortified. They're horrified, because that was not what Paul intended. This is what we call unintended consequences. That's the last thing that Paul wanted. And so he begins to preach to the people. He begins to preach to them that this this was wrong. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles and Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. That was a sign of just utter horror in the ancient world. They tore their garments and rushed down into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It's interesting to note the reaction of Paul and Barnabas to this act of high praise as compared to what Jesus would have done in a similar situation. How would Jesus have reacted if the people came out to offer him sacrifice? Jesus would have accepted their honors, wouldn't he? We're told that after the resurrection, he appeared to the disciples, and Thomas was not with them. And Thomas said, when he heard that the Lord had appeared, he said, well, I don't believe it. He said, unless I could take my finger and put it in the nail prints, unless I can take my hand and put it in the Lord's side, I will not believe. And we're told that sometime later, the Lord appeared and Thomas was with them. You remember that? And, and Jesus said, hey, Thomas, come over here. Come here, buddy. And he said, I want you to take your finger and put it in the nail prints. I want you to take your hand and here's my side. Go ahead, put it in that hole right there, that, that gaping wound right there. Can you imagine what Thomas was thinking at that point? I'm good. Don't worry about it. I got it. I'm all right. But the Lord insisted. In fact, there's a famous painting by an Italian artist that actually shows Jesus pushing Thomas's hand into the side. Thomas, at that point, didn't want to do it. He was reluctant. And the minute that he did, what did he do? He fell on his feet before Jesus, and he cried out, My Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't say, Oh, no, 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 Thomas, you can't say that. He accepted it. He said, You believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who've not seen yet believe. As the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus could accept that kind of praise. But Paul and Barnabas recognized that they were what? Servants of the Most High God. 
They were not the Son of God. And so while there was a great temptation to accept all of this praise and this honor that was showered upon them, they recognized they couldn't do that. Their job was to point people to the true Savior, Jesus Christ. And so they said, no, no, this is terrible. You must not do this. We are men just like you. And they go on to preach to them. Look at verse 16. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And yet even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. One of the things that's significant about Paul and Barnabas in Lystra is that this is the first time that we see them preaching to an overtly pagan audience. Up to this point, as I said, they went into a community and they went where? To the synagogue. And they preached to people who believed the Old Testament scriptures, and from that, perhaps from Isaiah and the suffering servant, they told the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the first time that they go into an area that is overtly Gentile, There are no Jews, as far as we can tell, in the audience at this point, at least. And they are preaching to a pagan audience. And what I want you to notice is that they preach in a slightly different way. The message is going to be the same, ultimately. But they approach this audience differently than they would approach the Jewish audience. There was no use going in and starting to talk about the story of redemption, moving from Genesis the whole way through the Old Testament. Why? Because these people didn't have the Old Testament. So you had to start in a different place. This is an important message for us as we seek to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in our day. You've got to meet people where they are. We are living in a post-Christian context and you cannot assume that people understand things that a previous generation understood. You've heard me say this many times before. You'll see a bumper sticker on the back of the car that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Did you ever see a bumper sticker like that? Well, let me tell you something. In 21st century, post-Christian America, God may have said it, you may believe it, but that doesn't settle it. Certainly not in the minds of a people who've never heard the gospel. There's a growing number of people, particularly young people in our culture, who are referred to as the nuns. N-O-N-E. And that's because when they are asked their religious affiliation, they say, none. Now, looking out over this crowd today, with the exception of Ryan over here, I think most of us grew up in a nominally Christian environment. Or even if people were only moderate churchgoers, they nevertheless regarded themselves as Christian. We're no longer living in that world, my friends. And so if we're going to preach the gospel to people, we've got to meet them where they are. We can't expect them to meet us where we are. That's the whole purpose of these missionary journeys, to go to where the people were, to bring the gospel to them. And we've got to be willing to do the same thing. So notice how Paul meets them where they are. He doesn't start with the scriptures. He starts with an appeal to natural revelation. Theologians like to say that there are two kinds of revelation where God reveals himself. And by the way, unless God reveals himself, we'll never be able to understand him. We we can't figure God out, but he can reveal himself to us and to our finite minds. And theologians say that there are two types of revelation. 
there is special revelation, God speaking in a unique way, that's oftentimes through the Bible or through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and then there's what is known as general or natural revelation, where God reveals himself in the creation. Keep your finger there for a moment in the book of Acts, and turn just a few pages to the right to Romans chapter 1. And let me show you what Paul has to say about natural revelation. Romans, of course, is that most famous of all Paul's letters, sometimes referred to as the Constitution of Christianity. It's a book that has transformed the lives of a great many people over the centuries. Martin Luther's life was transformed through an epistle to the Romans. St. Augustine's life was transformed through a reading of the epistle to the Romans. John Wesley's life was transformed through the epistle to the Romans. Many great Christians have been transformed by reading the epistle to the Romans. But it's a letter that begins, oddly enough, with Paul talking about judgment. Verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. Now, that's very interesting. Paul doesn't say that people are ignorant of the truth. He said they suppress the truth. And that's why God's wrath is being poured out. It's not because people are ignorant. God understands ignorance. The problem, he says, is that men are not ignorant. They suppress the truth. I say, well, now, what do you mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so men are what? Without excuse. Paul is basically saying atheism is an untenable position because God has revealed himself in the things that have been made. Made. Now, you may not be able to tell from nature what kind of a God exists, but you can tell that there is a God. In John chapter 1, the gospel begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you skip over to verse 14, and it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that term, Word, is really what in the Greek? You should know this, probably. Logos. Logos. That's right. Now, where does that come from? Well, it's interesting. What John is doing there is he is adapting or adopting Greek philosophical language, and he's applying it to Hebrew theology. There was, in the 4th century, I think it was, B.C., a famous Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclides, and Heraclides taught his students that the world was in a constant state of flux, that nothing stays the same. He's the one that says if you step into a river and you step back out of the river, it is changed. Nothing remains the same. And at one point, one of his disciples asked him a question. Well, then they said, how is it if the world is in a constant state of, of change and flux and nothing remains the same, why does there appear to be order in the universe? Why isn't everything just flying off into confusion? 
And Heraclides' response was, because there is a logos, a word that governs the change and brings order to the universe. Well, what does John do in his gospel? He takes that Greek philosophical idea and he applies it to God and specifically to Jesus Christ. He said, and the word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what Genesis says. John says basically the same thing. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and nothing was made that has been made except through the word. At which point Heraclides would have said, okay, I'm with you. But then John says the most amazing thing. He says, and that word became flesh. The word that created all things, that brings order to a universe that is constantly changing, that governs that change, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. What a powerful concept, powerful concept. But what's interesting is that even the ancient pagans recognized that there was order in the universe, that there had to be a creator. That's why Paul says men are without excuse when they said, oh, I don't think there is a God. What do you mean? Even the pagans recognize this. So that's where Paul starts. If you go back now to Acts chapter 14, that's where Paul starts. He starts with an appeal to natural revelation. He talks about one God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He goes on to say, this God has given men a free choice. Man is given free choice. Now, I didn't say free will. That's a whole other matter. But he does give, does give man free choice to either seek after this God or not to seek after this God. And he said we would all do well to seek after this God. Why? Because this is a God of justice. Verse 7, he will bring justice to the world. Now, at that point, what happens? We're told that as Paul is preaching, he's interrupted. Look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Isn't that amazing? Moments before, they are willing to sacrifice to them as the gods, but when Paul acknowledges that he's not a god, that he's a mere man, that he's come to proclaim the true God, and unless they repent, they will be held accountable for their actions because God is not ignorant of those who suppress the truth, what happens? They turn on him. They turn on him to such a degree that for the first time, they actually do physical harm to the apostles they stir up persecution, drag Paul from the city, and stone him, supposing that he was dead. What a fickle audience. People are fickle today, my friends. What they accept today, they reject tomorrow. And we need to acknowledge that that can happen as we share the gospel. Anybody know the story of Captain James Cook, Royal Navy? He was the man that discovered what were known as the Sandwich Islands the Hawaiian Islands. He went there in 1779. He was looking for provisions for the Royal Navy, and he discovered what were known as the, whole, the Sandwich Islands in those days, what we call the Hawaiian Islands today. And when he arrived in that great ship, uh, he actually had a small flotilla, people were impressed. 
the natives were impressed. They declared him to be the native god Lono, who had supposedly arrived on a rainbow. And they began to do homage to him. But at some point during his stay there, Cook got into an altercation with one of the local chiefs, and he was accidentally wounded. And when they saw him bleed, they recognized that he was not a god at all. And they attacked him, and they killed him, and they killed his entire crew. All of a sudden, he who had been a god moments before became a villain. That's what happened with Paul. That's what happened with Barnabas. They came in, they preached the gospel, there was division in the community, there was persecution. And Paul was dragged outside the city, and in this particular instance, unlike in Pisidian Antioch or in Iconium, he wasn't just driven from the community, he was actually attacked, stoned into an unconscious state, dragged outside the city, and left for dead. Paul makes reference to this in Galatians chapter 6, where he catalogs all of the things that he had to endure as a follower of Jesus Christ. And on one occasion he said, I was stoned. Well, he's referring here to this occasion, where he was stoned. So we see here, in the case of Lystra, there was persecution. Division in Iconium, persecution in Lystra. Now we move on to Derby, And the emphasis here in Derby is on what? Well, the emphasis in Derby here is on the growth. So let's just go ahead and read through the end here. Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made what? Many disciples. That's key. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I think it's fascinating that Paul continued on at this point to continue to preach the gospel and we're told that when he got to Derby, he preached there. And here on this occasion, many people believed. There are times when we're going to go into one part of the community and preach the gospel, and people are going to reject our message. There are going to be other times when we will go into other areas, and people will be more receptive. But the key is to keep on. That's exactly what Paul did. He kept on. In Iconium, there was division. In Lystra, there was persecution. But as we said, in that pattern... God always brings growth, and that's what happened here in Derby. Uh, yesterday I had lunch with a friend, and in the course of the conversation we were talking about a journey that we had taken. We had both been to the city of Ephesus. Um, we didn't go on the same trip, but we'd both been there. And one of the things that she said to me was, isn't it tragic, she said, having gone to Ephesus, which is this magnificent ruin of a city, just amazing, she said, having gone there, knowing that Paul spent such time there to realize that there are no vestiges of Christianity anywhere in the ruins of the city. Hardly any. I think, actually, there is a cross incised on a, a piece of marble somewhere. But for the most part, the city is just a pagan ruin. 
And she said, isn't that just tragic that to go to those ancient cities, and there's no evidence that Paul was even there. If you go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby today, there's no evidence of Christianity whatsoever. None. Those cities have passed away. What that reminds us is that Christianity is not contained within buildings or even within communities. Christianity is contained within the hearts of God's people. And even though those cities have passed from memory, many of them, some of them, hardly even a sign that they ever existed on the face of the earth, nevertheless, the Christian faith is here. And it continued to grow until it swept through the entire Roman Empire, bringing the nations to its knees. There is that wonderful expression in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, perhaps you're familiar with that rock group from the 1960s, The Birds, and the song, To Everything, Turn, 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 There is a Season, and a Time for Every Purpose Under Heaven. And that's the way it was for the Apostle Paul. No matter where he went, he shared the gospel. There was always the vision. Sometimes there was persecution. But Paul knew that in the end, God always gets the final word, and there would always be growth. And even though there is no remembrance whatsoever of what happened in Derby, we do know later on that a church was established there. Because later on in the book of Acts, when Paul was collecting a fund known as the Jerusalem Fund for the beleaguered believers in Jerusalem, we're told that one of the people that contributed to that fund and conducted him to Jerusalem was somebody from the city of Derby. I want that to be an encouragement to us. It is hard sometimes to preach the gospel. I have a friend who I went to high school with I was sharing this with Brian yesterday, and um, I haven't seen her in years. She's married. She lives in Pittsburgh. Uh, she was a brilliant young woman, summa cum laude graduate of the University of Pittsburgh, just brilliant. And, um, but she posted something on Facebook. She said, do any of you ever wonder about your purpose in life? Do you ever wonder why you're here? She said, I wonder about that frequently. I'm interested in what you think. Now, normally, I try not to weigh in on those conversations. I just do. Because I normally have more to say than I can get out. But I, and so I started to watch people as they began to respond. And so I decided, well, I just, I've got to weigh in on this. And so I did. And uh, basically what I told her was I quoted from Blaise Pascal, the, the famous French philosopher, who was the one who said there is in every man-woman's life a Christ-shaped vacuum that only Christ can fill. The world hates a vacuum, doesn't it? And when we're faced with a vacuum, what do we do? We try to fill it. We try to fill it with all sorts of things. With money, with success, with education, you name it. But the problem is that it is a Christ-shaped vacuum. And there's only one piece that fits. It's like a puzzle 
that has 10,000 pieces. And you, get, you put all the pieces together and you get to the very end and there's one piece right there in the middle that's missing. And you look underneath the sofa and you look underneath the cushions and you can't find that piece. And you realize that no matter how much you've done, because there's one piece missing, that picture is incomplete. Doesn't matter how good the rest of the picture looks, it's not complete. And so you go out to the store and you buy another puzzle and try to hammer a piece in, but nothing fits. There's only one piece that fits, and it's Christ-shaped. My friends, that's true in our lives. Some people don't want to hear the gospel message. Some people take offense at it. But we are living in a world of restless hearts. And Paul knew that there were restless people in Iconium. There were restless people in Lystra. There were restless people in Derby who had a Christ-shaped void in their life and they were trying to fill it with everything and nothing would work. And he knew from his own existence that that was true for him. And having found that missing piece, he had no greater desire than to go out and share that good news with others. That's us. She wrote back and said, I'm not particularly religious. And I said, well, maybe it's time to get religious. And my response to her was simply this. If you want to know what your purpose in life is, and I'll say the same thing to you. If you've ever wondered what your purpose in life is, what your raison d'etre, your reason for being is, there's only one who can give you the answer to that. If I discover some sort of invention, but I don't have any idea as to what it's used for or what its purpose is, the best thing I could do is ask the one who made it. That's what I told her. I said, if you want to know what your purpose is, you're asking the right question, but you're asking the wrong audience because most of the people were weighing in and saying, your purpose is whatever you desire it to be. That's what a lot of people said. Your purpose is to have as much fun while you're alive. Some of the things that they were saying, I can't repeat to a church audience, to be perfectly honest with you. But I told her in no uncertain terms, if you're really looking for your purpose, you had better ask the one who made you. The one who created you in his image. How many of you have ever read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Well, if you haven't, I commend it to you. You say, well, it's a horror novel. It's a good horror novel. It's, it's not like It by Stephen King, which I don't recommend to you. But I do recommend the classics, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I do recommend Frankenstein. And there's a scene in Frankenstein where he's created this creature. He's trying to beat death, you know. And he's created this creature, and the creature turns out to be this horrible thing. And he flees from the creature and the terrible things that the creature is doing. And there's one scene in the book where it's toward the end where he has tried to escape this creature as far as he can, and he's on a ship, and he's caught in the ice. And he can't escape, and he sees the creature coming across the ice toward him, and Dr. Frankenstein shouts out, What do you want from me? And the creature cries back, I want to know why you have made me thus. I want to know why I'm here. I want to know what my purpose is. Because you see, unless you have a purpose in life, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. You'll never know your purpose unless you know the one who made you in his image 
and has a plan for your life. That was the message that Paul went out to proclaim to those people. He said, do not be mistaken. You know there's a God. He wants to have a plan. He wants to have a relationship with you. Let me tell you, there's, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Are you aware of that? There are many people that show up for church every Sunday, and they know a great deal about God. But they don't know him. You can read a biography of the President of the United States or the Queen of England and know a great deal about them without ever having a relationship with them. God wants to have a relationship with you. Well, now what's interesting is that when Paul finishes this time in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, what would you think he would do? Well, the easiest thing to do would have been travel overland through what is now modern-day Turkey back to the church that had sent them out, the sending church, which is what he was supposed to do. And that would have been a very convenient route for Paul because it would have taken him through the city of Tarsus, which was his hometown. Well, what I want you to notice is that Paul didn't do that. Did you notice that blue line on the screen? How Paul went back through the towns where he had been strengthening the believers. That meant back through Lystra, where those people had attacked him and stoned him. He went back through those towns, strengthening the believers. Now, what's interesting is strengthening the believers. There may not have been many, there were some there. And those churches would grow, and they would prosper, and the gospel would be spread. I want you to notice four things that Paul did, beginning at verse 22 through the end. We're told he strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them. We are called to be encouragers, my friends. Now, when you say encouraging, you need to understand what's meant by that. That doesn't mean just building people up, blowing smoke. Uh, Brian preached on encouragement last night at the 5 o'clock service. And uh, after it was over and we were getting changed to come down here uh, to have dinner, I went up and I saw that Rachel, my assistant, was still working. And I said, Rachel, close up whatever you're doing and go home. She's, she's a hard worker, she's there early, and she stays late. And I just said, you're going home. And Brian said, now, Jeff, didn't you hear what I said in church? <laughs> I said, I'm encouraging her. I'm encouraging her to go home. I'm encouraging her not to talk back to her boss. I'm encouraging to go be with her husband. When Paul talks about encouragement, that's what he means. He means encouraging them to follow in the way of the Lord. He's not just trying to puff them up. We live in this age of self-esteem. He's not just trying to make them feel good about themselves. He's trying to encourage them to follow in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need to do with our families and our friends. Encourage them to follow in the way of the Lord because there are so many things that would distract them and pull them away. So he encourages them. He continued to teach the believers, we're told. There was so much that they didn't get the first time around. So Paul came back and he continued to teach them. Teaching is so vital to the life and the welfare of the church. Third thing is this, is he organized the church. He appointed elders, we're told. People who would take over when he was gone. And finally, in verse 23, we're told, he prayed and fasted. 
and committed them to the Lord. And look at this in verses 24 and following. And they left, and they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. Isn't that wonderful? They finished the work they had been given to do. How many of you would say you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ out there? If you do, I want you to understand something. That means you've got work to do. And I want you to understand something else. There's no such thing as retirement in the Christian vocabulary. You may retire from IBM or from the bank, but you don't retire from the Christian life. And that means if you're still alive, you've got work to do. And if you don't know what God's plan is for your life, ask him. And if you don't know what work he has for you to do, ask me. (laughs) And I'll tell you. But what we all want to know when we come to the end of our day is that we have finished the work God gave us to do in the time that we had. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Paul and for Barnabas. We thank you that they traveled throughout these three ancient cities to Iconium, where there was division, to Lystra, where there was persecution, and to Derby, where there was growth. And we thank you, Lord, that even at that point, when they could have simply gone back home, they didn't. They realized their work was not done. They went back through those places, encouraging, strengthening, pointing elders, and praying for the believers. Grant us the grace, Lord, like Paul, to finish the course that has been set before us, to fight the good fight, to complete the race, so that at the end of our days, there may be stored up for us a crown of everlasting life. We ask this in Jesus' name. And for Jesus' sake, amen. When we come back together again next week, we're going to take a look at the first church council, very important event in the life of the early church, Acts chapter 15. See you then.